What's going on, everybody? You are on another episode of Empty Brass, and I'm your host, CJ Boxrude. Before we get started today, uh, I owe everybody a little bit of transparency, uh, both my listeners and the sponsors of this show, and quite honestly to myself and my family, too. Uh, As all of you are well aware, uh, our world kind of turned upside down on March 13th when they started instituting lockdowns, and, you know, we started hearing the word COVID-19 and social distancing and, and all of that. And where I was with the podcast was, uh, frankly, exactly where I wanted to be. A lot of good things were happening. A lot of good partnerships were being made. I was planning on attending NRAM uh, in April, and I had lots of plans and everything lined up. And like many, many plans around the world, not just mine, uh, it all kind of came crashing down. And the part that I need to be honest about is the break uh, in between episodes, because I could very easily say uh, all this stuff came up and, you know, I was just taking a break to figure out where I was going with the podcast and and yada, yada, yada. And it'd be very believable, too, but uh, it wouldn't be the truth uh, because uh, in my life, the way I've dealt with things that uh, some adversity is usually to just shut it off. Uh, It's a truly unhealthy way to deal with things. It's not going to get you anywhere. And you would think that I would have learned this by now. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, as I get older, it seems to be kind of my my coping mechanism or my first defense uh, to when things don't go my way or when things get a little bit hard. Uh, it's not something that I'm proud of. It's not something that I would recommend, uh, but it is kind of the way I've naturally gone uh, the last five to ten years, I would say. And I think it's important because when I started this podcast, one of my main goals was to help people. It was to bring positivity. It was to bring uh, something valuable to people that listen. That was really my goal. Firearms are my passion, so it kind of ties in with firearms, but that's really uh, one of the things that I like to try and accomplish. And so uh, I've thought long and hard about this, and this has probably only extended the delay because uh, I've been avoiding uh, having this conversation with my microphone and in turn all of you guys. Uh, But the truth is, is when I get bogged down when I when I think things are disappointing uh, I tend to kind of check out and ignore them and that's what I did because I was I was very uh, pleased and excited with the way Empty Brass had gone at SHOT Show I was really pumped to get out to uh, to NRAM and uh, get another you know set of episodes ready to go uh, the quality was good and on top of that uh, if if I could partner with any gun company on this planet uh, it would be Atlas Gunworks Everybody is pretty well aware that I'm a 2011 lover and supporter, and uh, a few weeks before all this came about, uh, I was extremely lucky uh, to partner with Atlas Gunworks. I I made a a deal with them that we were going to support each other going forward, and it was one of the pinnacles of Empty Brass so far. It's, you know, a dream come true, and I think that uh, that added to the letdown a little bit is because that just had happened, Uh, but self-destruction or self-sabotage. I think it's something that everybody in some way or another deals with, whether it be in a relationship or whether it be uh, at work or whatever. I think it's uh, it's something that's not talked about very often. Uh, and it's definitely not something that I really started doing uh, until one of my best friends from the army took his life. That was pretty much how I dealt with that. I checked out and I basically ignored it uh, for a long time. And that didn't help me. It didn't help the people around me. 
And just like that situation, this situation here of uh, being disappointed and so checking out and ignoring it and not uh, facing it and trying to adapt to it, uh, that's a problem that I've dealt with for a long time. And it's probably not the last time either. But I do think that uh, talking about it, being real about it on this episode uh, is something that'll be therapeutic for me and hopefully for people listening. And overall, that's really the true goal. Uh, You know, I want to make you a better shooter. I want to make you uh, a better firearms enthusiast. But overall, uh, I want to help improve people's lives. And I want to improve my own life, too. And so I didn't feel right publishing another episode uh, until I got this off my chest, until I sat down and uh, got these thoughts out, because uh, I owe it to everybody that's listening. I owe it to my family, and I owe it to myself to be honest and real about it. I believe that the more that I can identify it and be real about it the better I can deal with it and not let it happen the next time Uh, in this situation I don't know that I really have suffered any negative consequences from it uh, other than just letting people down with uh, the constant uh, you know episodes that I basically that I promised this year Uh, but I do have a plan now going forward Uh, I've got a great episode here with Jim that I think you guys are really going to like and I want you to keep in mind it was recorded around mid-March. So there are some backdated things that you're going to hear in there. Uh, We were sort of thinking through what we were seeing as far as these travel bans and lockdowns uh, as they were coming. I don't think it takes any value away from the episode. Uh, If if anything, I hope it helps remind people kind of the stage that we were in uh, no more than six weeks ago and the hill that we've got ahead of us. I also wanted to to put it out there too that I think this is a great opportunity uh, for the 2A firearms unit as a whole. Uh, We've had problems with being divided, we've had problems uh, not being in unison, and as well as many of you are probably aware, in March there was some 2.9 million background checks done for firearms, and so uh, there's lots of opportunity out there to recruit uh, new gun owners. And I think it's really important that uh, we seize this opportunity, that we really take the chance here to, to welcome these people in uh, to not get on them for what they don't know or or make fun of them or chase them back away uh, because we've got HR 5717 uh, that's that's been introduced and that will add a 50% gun tax to the firearm itself and a 30% tax to the ammunition uh, and that's a, a real threat to us and and something that we all need to be aware of and working towards to make sure that doesn't happen uh, because that's a that's a huge opportunity for gun control and one we may never get back once it goes through. Uh, Lots of power has been taken by elected officials the last six weeks, and part of it is because we let them. And as the saying goes, they're not going to relinquish those powers once they have them. Uh, So this is my opportunity to help unify that group. Uh, It's going to be a collective effort from people with much bigger followings than me. Uh, But I I just wanted to put that out there too, that this is an opportunity for us that we have to seize. Uh, We can't let this one go by, and we also cannot Uh, let people take these powers initiative and then there's nothing we can do about it in the end once they've got it that's it Uh, we'll be be paying a 50 percent tax on guns for eternity and so uh, with that I just want to thank everybody that's uh, coming back and tuning in again uh, and being patient with me and uh, letting me tell my sob story here because uh, you know I needed to and and you guys needed to hear it Uh, but anyway that's kind of all I got I don't want to be going off for too long because I do have a great episode with Jim here and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it Uh, but like always thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next time
What's going on everybody? You're on another episode of Empty Brass and I'm your host CJ Boxrude. Uh, today I'm coming to you from my kitchen with a very special guest. Uh, I think it would be inappropriate to ignore the current events that are going on in the world right now. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, big bad coronavirus. Uh, but initially, uh, my guest on today's episode is Jim Krantz. Jim, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, CJ. Appreciate it. Uh, so you're a young dude, got a lot of talent. Tell me how you got into training, how you got into shooting, uh, kind of where you're from in the world, and a little bit of just your background. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a little bit newer to the shooting game than a lot of the other guys that I kind of follow or hang out with. Um, I picked up a pistol, I want to say, for the first time of my own uh, almost three years ago now. Okay. Um and it was just kind of a, I thought I could use this thing, it, you know, it'd be cool to learn to, to shoot. You know, I'd seen a few other people with it. Uh, didn't really see anyone carrying a pistol, mm-hmm. um, but it was a 40 Smith & Wesson SIG P250. Went to the range a few times, shot like maybe 50 rounds, you know, no consistency, no sense of urgency or anything like that. And then uh, kind of realized that there was a little bit more out there. And mm-hmm. I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw a few people doing drills, uh, close retention stuff and like rubber dummies. Yeah. I thought that looked really cool, but in the back of my mind, it kind of looked dangerous because even though I was brought up in a gun culture, mm-hmm. um, we didn't necessarily you know, own AR-15s or own pistols and stuff. We played with a lot of airsoft guns as kids, but we primarily owned like shotguns and deer hunting rifles. So this stuff was a little bit newer to me. So I kind of went out there and was like, well, what can I do with this and, and where can I take it? And started learning on my own, mm-hmm. uh, going to the range every other weekend, uh, bought a nine millimeter because nine mil is a lot cheaper. Yeah. And uh, just went out and, and did what I saw, you know, online and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of developed that, that sense of urgency. And honestly, buying a shot timer was where I really started to understand like where I fell uh, in line with all the other people I saw out there and kind of what standards looked like. So following a lot of a lot of shooters and a lot of really good instructors, um, I kind of developed like a, a desire to go further with this and found USBSA competition shooting. Went to my first match and I kind of showed up with the tactical uh, tactical Timmy gear. Yeah. You know, I had the, the belt and the med kit and the rifle mags, all that stuff. I didn't really know what I was getting into, and I shot my first uh, first stage, and it looks like from the, everyone's faces that it was really really good. And then I went and talked to the you know director, and he's like, that was really good. How many years have you been shooting USPSA? I'm like, well, this is my first match ever. Uh, it was that good. He's like, yeah, you should definitely like think about going a little bit further with this. So I started to narrow down kind of what the differences between USPSA shooting was and what, you know, a more prepared, you know, tactical style shooting was. And, uh, you know, kind of got rid of the med kit and, yeah. and started, uh, you know, following guys like, you know, Shane Coley, you know, guys that are really, really good at USPSA. And I'm like, what, what makes them so much better than everyone else in the crowds at these bigger matches? What is it? And a lot of it's, you know, I figured out it's footwork. Mm. And a lot of it is their presentation on the targets, you know, the, the moving slower and, and, you know, not exposing yourself behind different walls and stuff that pretty much all goes out the door when you shoot USBSA. Sure. I understand it's practical, but you're trying to shave hundreds of seconds off and the gaming aspect of it was really what captured me, what really got me into it. Yeah. So I started to take that a little bit further and I made, uh, I made C class in, uh, 2019, uh, midsummer and uh, got made a little bit fun of for being a C-class shooter because <laughs> yeah. I, I was shooting a little bit faster than that. So I went and found a couple of class fire matches and uh, just recently, uh, right after SHOT Show actually, uh, made master class. That's and, awesome, man. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So it's, it's been a little bit of a journey to get there and I'm realizing that that last 5%, you know, trying to make that jump from, from master class to grandmaster class is a lot harder than all the other jumps. Yeah, especially when you're doing it with a 
polymer gun, man. I think yeah. that's uh, people don't really realize that there is a certain there is a certain window where that gun starts to matter a little bit. It yeah. starts to, you know, it starts to play into the factor. So the fact that you're doing it with a polymer gun is is pretty impressive. And also, I mean, one thing that I've always liked about you is uh, you did dive headfirst in the USPSA, but you've also never lost your taste for uh, whatever you want to call it, defensive or tactical. Absolutely. Uh, how is it that you try and manage that balance or approach that balance between uh, the gaming side, but then also being, uh, you know, useful in other places or other scenarios. So that's something I'm still really working on, um, but it's come become very apparent to me that um, yes, they are two very different things. Mm -hmm. You know, your 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 prepared shooting, your real life scenario defensive shooting uh, versus your USPSA shooting. There's things you can take from both of them, and I actually kind of like the way I started. You know, kind of having a mix of both because I was able to find certain things that worked for me. Um, in, in one style and, and kind of bring it over to the other style of shooting. Um, one of the biggest things that I had to, to kind of get rid of is the planting myself in positions. Uh, locking into a position like you would in defensive shooting, you know, having that perfect stance, having that perfect presentation. A lot of times I'm on one foot and you know, I'm, I'm making that lean for that last target or I'm, I'm kind of running through a target array. Um, that was you know, really something I had to kick out of myself. You know, when I watch other guys shoot, and there's a lot of guys, you know, from Minnesota, master, grandmaster level shooters, and I'll watch those guys shoot, and, you know, I have to remind myself every time which which sport we're really shooting here, mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of remove that that mentality. So it's been it's been a little bit of a learning curve there, but I think, uh, I think I've got a little bit better grasp on it. And going into the 2020 season, um, I'm trying to separate my range days. So when I'm out there practicing, if I'm out there practicing for USPSA, probably not going to pick up the rifle. Probably yeah. not going to put on a plate carrier, probably not going to do any of that stuff. I'm just going to focus on a drill that's something I may not like to do, but it's something I really struggle with in matches, whether that be my footwork, whether that be uh, my transitions, you know, anything really difficult that I've been struggling with in USPSA. I'm going to focus on that stuff. And then at the end, maybe I'll break out the rifle for, you know, 20 minutes or something like that, see if I'm, I'm still where I should be at, you know, with all my standards, and then I'll pack it up and go home. Other days, when I go with a certain group of guys, um, those are days when we're doing a little bit more, you know, prepared. Uh, I, don't, I don't like using the word tactical, but, you know, a tactical style yeah. shooting. Yeah, I wish there was a good substitute word. It, I you know, know I, I'm not very good at it. You know, I, I kind of just dive into the competition thing and yeah. leave the rest of the stuff out the door. And so I always appreciate guys that kind of uh, find that time or find that aspect. Uh, when you're preparing for either, uh, I know you're kind of meticulous and you're, you know, have that good pursuit of efficiency. Uh, walk me through like a, a normal week for you. What's a dry fire daily regiment, weekly regiment? Like how is it that you've been able to progress? How old are you? 24. Okay, 24. So you're super young in the shooting community I and mean, you've really only got three years of the legality side on it. Mm -hmm. So you basically started right away, which is rare. Uh, that's a luxury that I think a lot of us don't have. But uh, your maturity when it comes to that pursuit is, is high above a lot of people your age. What is it that a week and a day looks like as far as just not live firing at the range? Right. So to be 100% honest with that, um, I travel for work. Yeah. And that can complicate things depending on where I am and what I'm really doing. Sure. Um, if I did not travel for work, I would be at the range every single weekend, but that's not always possible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can travel with firearms. Sometimes I can't depending on where I'm going. It's just not convenient to bring a box full of stuff, um, being that there's restrictions in certain places that I go. So for weeks that I'm on the road, if I have the opportunity to bring, um, you know, at least my pistol, at least my carry pistol, mm -hmm. um, I can spend some time in my hotel room. You know, I might spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes uh, doing a little bit of draws and dry fire. But my dry fire primarily when I'm on the road 
Um, it's not like standing up, putting spots on the wall, drawing from the holster, all that stuff. I'll typically, I'll throw in my dry fire mag. Mm -hmm. Maybe while I'm watching TV or something or working, I might just take a minute, I'll pick up my gun, I'll pick a spot on the wall and I'll click it a few times. Mm -hmm. I'll put it down, I'll keep working. I don't really have like a, a scheduled, you know, uh, uh, regimen of, of dry fire that I do. And I know a lot of guys do, and a lot of guys have 45 minutes a day, or maybe they do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening, something like that. I've never got into that habit. And it's kind of funny because I'll go to a major match or whatever in the hotel room before that. I'm like, oh man, I should dry fire a little bit more. And I put on the whole belt, put on the whole rig, you know, and I, I dry fire for 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. That's the same type of picture I'm going to see. I find that if I do it too much, I actually get in my head. And I start forgetting things that, that are, you know, just little things that I might actually see through live fire or out on the range. And, you know, and not saying dry fire is bad. I think dry fire is actually really, really good and extremely useful for newer shooters. And I actually wish I would have done it more when I really started shooting. Mm -hmm. um, but there are times when I will develop an unrealistic speed uh, or unrealistic presentation for one or the other techniques because there's not a live round going off. Okay. Um, and a lot of that comes into, in, into play with, you know, reloads. When you're dry firing, a lot of times you're in a position that's optimal for reloading. So you're indexing the same spot every time. Obviously, you can move yourself around, but in a match, you're going to be dealing with different terrain. You're going to have gravel. You might have mud. You might, you know, it's a lot of different stuff. And depending on where your feet are when you come into that position, and then you're trying to get out of that position, and you're trying to make that reload happen on the move, that's not necessarily something I can simulate perfectly um, in my dry fire. And you know, understanding the 180 rule, taking that into account. You can try to put all that stuff in place, but I do not think that there's any substitute for live fire practice. And I try to have, um, I'd say 90% of my training uh, is live fire uh, and 10% uh, is dry fire. That's, that's an interesting perspective. I, I think it's a, a bit unorthodox, but I, you know, I also think it's, a, it's really enlightening in a way because uh, everyone has different methods that work right. for them, you know, and everyone has different resources too. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, it, you know, I think the perspective on that stuff is it's good to talk about it because there's not a one size fits all for everybody. I think some people learn in different environments. Some people uh, are more efficient when it comes to all of the factors being, you know, tumultuous or being all the factors being optimal, like you said. Right. So it's it's an interesting uh take on it just because I, I haven't really heard too many people say that uh, being a master at your age and the time that you spend in it shooting the gun that you are uh, it's obviously working for you and let's go back to that I'm gonna give a, a shameless plug we're both Mac defense guys we are. and uh, you're gonna do uh, another season with a polymer gun what is it that sort of keeps you on that platform I was my Instagram handle has the word Glock in it and if you've listened to this podcast before or met me once, you know I've a bit abandoned it for 2011. Uh, but what is it that, because I got a lot of respect for guys like you that, that stick with it because uh, it's, it's a harder platform to manipulate. I don't, I don't care what the argument is. It's a, not a good grip angle. The trigger sucks no matter what you do to it. There's lots of things that make it harder to run. What is it that keeps you uh, staying with that sort of Glock Palmer atmosphere? So this is uh, pretty plain and simple. Yeah. Um, USPSA. Uh, the P is for practical, sure. and I carry a Glock, yeah. so my entire reason for getting into competition was because in my mind, I thought, okay, this is going to be a sport in which we practice everyday scenarios from our everyday stuff. And I didn't realize that there's a different belt setup involved, there's all this stuff involved. I literally showed up to my first match, I had no expectation, I didn't really know what we were going to be doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, it's really just about the, the repetitions on something that I would carry every day in real life. Or need in a you know a whatever situation civil unrest or whatever you want to call it yeah. um, 
if if you could get a 2011 38 Super Comp that ran super well, I don't doubt that that's like the the best gun. You know, flattest shooting, all that stuff. But it's really hard to carry concealed, and you know, maybe it's not the best gun for that. Um, so I'm trying to kind of stick to the, the the platform of the Glock right now. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I mean, like I've I've gone out and tried 2011s. I've shot a few different open guns here and there, and you know, there's a little part of you, you know, you let a couple rounds off and you go, wow, I, I really want this. I really want to do this because you can go so much faster. You can do a lot more. And I'm like, oh, I really want to see what I could do if you just kind of let me lose some one of these guns. Mm-hmm. And then I remember kind of why I'm doing it. And part of my platform, part of what I'm trying to do and, you know, kind of preach to newer shooters and, and hope that they can follow somewhat in the steps that I started in. Um, you don't need special gear to get into shooting, and you definitely don't need special gear to get into shooting USPSA mm-hmm. or any form of competition. Take what you have, go there, and don't set an expectation. Just yeah. learn from the people that are out there. So if I can take my carry setup, which I actually sometimes run, I'll shoot open minor out of a TRX arm sidecar with my, my everyday carry Glock 19 with a, a white light on it and everything, and I'll shoot the open minor division. Yeah, and you can shoot that. that. Yeah. It's it's kind of fun because you know yeah. the guys show up and they're like, oh, what are you what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna shoot my carry setup. I'll shoot open minor, and I'll get pretty close to some of these guys shooting open guns that are you know major power factor, which is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. But I really like that aspect of just taking something that you know is an everyday gun and putting it in my USPSA holster and going right back to work with the same thing I'm familiar with. And uh, so far, it's actually worked out uh, really well, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can continue to kind of push this platform forward and see how far it can go. So with that topic, this is kind of a reoccurring theme on the show. Uh, a lot of people have different uh, sort of views on this. I'd just like to get your take. Uh, what do you think about the future of some of these 2011s that are, are said to have really good reliability uh, as a duty or a carry platform? Like, Do you have an opinion on that? Do you see... Uh, it changing a little bit or, or how do you see that yeah so honestly um it's it's the same when anything new comes to market everyone's immediately skeptical of it sure um yeah. and people typically don't want to even give something the benefit of the doubt if there's another piece of equipment that's been in that place providing that solution for a long time like for example if, if, a, if a dot came out today and it was more rugged longer battery life and cheaper than an RMR, mm. a lot of people wouldn't even give it a second thought. They'd be like, nope, I don't want this because my RMR works. Um, this mentality is what holds back a lot of products in this industry. And, and I understand we have a lot of snake oil that different companies push, like really dumb products. Yeah. But there is a lot of really cool, innovative stuff that's coming to market. And from a, from a perspective of someone that, that likes to try everything itself before he develops an opinion, mm. I think if people would give uh, a platform or an optic or whatever a little bit of a chance, we would see um, some even better products come to market and stay than we have before. So I think the STI thing, you know, they're, they're developing some pistols that uh, will will be maybe considered carry guns. I like the direction that company's going. I like the direction other companies are going. Um, I think people just need to give them a chance. And don't get me wrrong, if you go through the process, you know, um, Aaron Cowan, Sage Dynamics, mm-hmm. um, he beats the crap out of everything he tests. If you go and you watch one of his videos, he's like, yeah, I put 20,000 rounds to this thing. Here's my entire process. Here's a 75-page like working document about, about you know all the steps along the way. You can go, okay, I have confidence in that optic or I don't have confidence in that optic. Same thing with carry pistols. Yeah. Run them through their paces. If they work, stop having an emotional bias to the thing that you've been carrying every day. Yeah, and I think one thing uh, that sort of brought me over to it a little bit is uh, both of our carry Glocks are sitting here. Uh, 
I can't give you an exact price, but I would guess that both of them are fall on around the $1,500 range, yep. uh, everything included. And so one of the things I kind of started to realize is that uh, when I bought my 2011, I didn't have to do anything to it. I didn't have right. to upgrade it. I didn't have to change it. Now, it was a little more than $1,500, mm -hmm. but I did kind of start to realize that the price difference isn't as big as I made it out to be in my head. Just because I bought a $500 gun, and then by the time I had a slide <clears throat> cut, a stipple job, all the components traded out for something a little bit better, a dot, you know, you know the works, and then a light, all of a sudden I was right in that same neighborhood. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people are like, ah, I'm not going to pay that much for it. And it's, uh, they're already paying that much for right. it. They're already paying close to it. And so that was one of the things that I kind of, I had to realize for myself a little bit because I, I don't blame people like four four thousand dollars for a pistol. It's a lot of money. It is. Yeah. Uh, but pull the trigger on an atlas, and your your performance <laughs> will you know it will go up. You will right. shoot better because you're not going to have as many trigger you know malfunctions or not a malfunction, but uh, pull the trigger and move the gun before it goes There's off. There's less basically. deflection as you yeah. press that trigger. Right. Exactly. So uh, let's move to a little bit of the current topic. So you and I have a pretty like mindset on this. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you approach preparing in life or how you uh, approach being ready. Now that can be anything from food and water storage all the way to I carry every time I step out the door. Uh, you know, I make sure that I've got reserve gas online. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your mindset and then talk to me a little bit about where that developed or came from. Okay. So honestly, you know, to start with actually where it came from, um, my primary in primary influence has been uh, family members, specifically my father. We always went camping, hunting, mm -hmm. fishing, all this stuff. We spent a lot of time in the woods and a lot of guys get caught up in the just focusing on, you know, speed and transitions on shooting and all this stuff. And they forget about in a situation uh, where we have, you know, let's say just full civil unrest or even if like uh, in the South, they have hurricanes. If you need to uh, evac, if you need to get out and you might not be in shelter for a few days, mm -hmm. being able to go on a three day backpacking trip with nothing but what you're carrying for support yeah. um, can come in really, really handy for that. And a lot of people forget that. So this is something that I've, you know, continued to stay up to date with as I've, you know, gotten a little bit older, you know, even though I don't go on some of those camping trips anymore, um, all of that equipment is stuff that I'm familiar with and I will continue to go out and test. And a lot of times it's difficult for me because I travel for work. I'm in different, uh, different cities, different states, different countries. Uh, regulations are different. I may not have my optimal gear for getting out of a situation with me. Mm -hmm. So I need to understand how to make do with what I have yeah. and kind of think on the fly. So thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm more comfortable if I have my truck, right? Yeah. I can fill all my stuff in there. I can put auxiliary fuel in there, all that stuff. If I have a rental car, maybe it doesn't have uh, good snow tires. Those are things you need to take into account. If I need to ditch this thing and I need to go, you know, backpack because of whatever situation, um, that's going to be at a different timeline than it would be if I had my optimal gear at home. So this is, I'm in a unique role because not a lot of people that would consider themselves preppers. I hate using that word because the, the media has kind of twisted that word a little bit. Anyone that's prepared, sure. you know, is a scary prepper, right? They're hiding out in the woods. Yeah. Um, that is not the case at all. I think people that are... Um, not living their life in fear, but are understanding that things can collapse. Um, those are the smart people. Now, the people that are last minute prepping like mm. right now, yeah. that is the example of someone that's on the other end of that spectrum. So when I, when I get up in the morning, you know, my routine is, is making sure that, you know, I have the things that I need for that day. And then I think about what I have with me. Uh, do I have enough to survive for three days? 
Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people are like, oh my God, you got to carry all this food. You got to carry all this stuff or whatever. Well, you can go for a really long time without food. And then people always think about, you know, bottled water, right? You got to have water. You got to have water. Uh, you can go to REI and you can get a water filter. Yeah. I have a pump and I keep that with me when I travel. Um, you can, and I have pump water out of a moose footprint, a muddy moose footprint in the woods and drink it. Yeah. It works great. Yeah. So a lot of people forget about really simple stuff like that. So yeah. like I said, every day and every week, depending on where I'm at, um, this stuff can change. The environment can change. So understanding how it changes and being able to adapt um, has been something I've kind of learned over the past year as I've been traveling for work. And, um, you know, it's, a lot of people rely on having that, that house or having that refuge, you know, that network of people wherever you go. A lot of times I'm in a state or, or wherever in a country, I may not even speak the language. Um, I may be, you know, have no support for a very long time. So things like medical, things like water, things like, um, you know, basic uh, uh, meds, those are things that, you know, I always can continue to think about and I always carry those with me because if I need to get out of whatever situation there is, if we get called back home, something like that, um, I need to be able to get there. And right now I'm driving 1,300 miles across the country because we've got all these flight restrictions mm-hmm. uh, due to the, the current virus outbreak. Um, so I have everything with me. Uh, if I need to, to ditch the car and I need to walk, I can walk back. Right yeah, now. that's no problem. Yeah, um, it's gonna take a little while, but yeah. you can do that. So I give you a ride, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. But you know, I, and I don't have everything with that I want. Yeah, a lot of stuff I left at home because of weight, yeah. because of room in the in the rental vehicle, things like that. Um, but I think everyone is gonna be different depending on their environment. I think you need to study your environment and understand that basic Boy Scout or camping rules that you yeah. may have learned from your grandpa, from your uncle, from your dad. A lot of people forget that stuff. Yeah. That stuff is just as critical as understanding how to be proficient with a firearm. Yep. And a lot of people forget that. So We're going to touch a little bit more on that in just a second. Uh, we're going to break for the ads for this episode. Uh, so hold that thought, and we'll be right back after this. Thanks for taking this quick break with me. Uh, for me to remind you guys that this podcast is sponsored. Uh, they're sponsored by Mac Defense, as always. Mac Defense specializes in building duty-grade handguns for armed professionals and the responsible armed civilians. They offer a top-tier product at a price point accessible to the working man. Their no-compromise approach with their expert craftsmanship lead to a fine-tuned product with a focus on functionality. In an industry inundated with Gucci guns that fall on their face, they strive to build guns that run as good as they look in all conditions. From complete builds to modifying customer-supplied guns and components, they've got you covered. From full builds to quick Mac, quick ship Mac 19 pistols, make sure you visit www.macdefenseindustries.com. You know, the more you think about something, the harder it becomes to ignore. What if I mention recoil management or muzzle rise, for example? Suddenly, you've thought about it, right? See how Atlas Perfect Zero changes the recoil and muzzle rise conversation altogether at atlasgunworks.com forward slash perfect zero. All right, and we're back. Uh, thank you for listening to those ads. Uh, we're back with Jim. Jim, the first thing we're going to kind of discuss here uh, is equipment. So specifically civilians using what maybe in the past has been deemed military or law enforcement only, and you know that's written on EOTechs, but what is it about your approach and your views of someone like yourself or Lucas uh, that don't have military or law enforcement but still uh, finding a need and a way to be efficient and proficient uh, with these uh, pieces of equipment like night vision, IR lasers, 
so on and so forth. Right, right. So, you know, a lot of guys like myself get a little bit of heat on social media uh, when people see us using things like plate carriers sure. or guys like wearing armor, running night vision goggles, anything like that. Um, people will look at that stuff and they'll go, okay, like I thought a, you know, a gun was good. I thought that was okay for civilians, but then this stuff is somehow not. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, my, my default is, is saying that, well, this is not a firearm, therefore it, it shouldn't have anything to do with this conversation. But lately, I've kind of not even felt the need to justify that because mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, you're just going to get caught up with someone who just wants to point out things that they don't like because of misinformation or poor education. Um, I don't think there is an item that I would consider um, military only. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people are like, oh, where do you draw the line? Like, what if someone has like an F-35? Well, um, last time I checked, an F-35, not a lot of people have the money to buy an F-35, let alone even know how to fly it and get it off of the ground. Yeah. So those were available for civilian purchases. Um, no one would have them yeah. because you can't. It's too complicated. It's too expensive. You know, you'd, you'd kill yourself immediately. <laughs> so... Um, you know, people are like, okay, then where do you draw the line with like small arms and stuff? I, I don't. If if someone wants to own a belt fed M60, I think you should be able to buy that over the counter. Mm -hmm. People go, oh no, 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 you can't have machine guns. Well, again, it's a ten thousand dollar piece of equipment, yeah. right? Not a lot of people can afford that, so there's that barrier of entry. But at the end of the day, um, there are people that are going out there and they're buying full autos and stuff illegally on the street because these guns exist. Mm -hmm. None of these background checks, none of the processes that we have in place, have ever been proven to stop anything. Yeah. So. It's really counterintuitive to me that I see people pointing out that civilians shouldn't be able to have things uh, for defensive purposes like body armor when they, you know, see people trade uh, fully automatics, you know, in downtown Chicago. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I think that it's very counterintuitive for that individual to criticize me on owning body armor when they should really be thinking about, well, if, if I do disagree with, you know, bad guys having this, we want less bad guys to have this, all this or whatever... Um, wouldn't you rather have body armor in the case that you need it because, let's say, there's a situation, law enforcement can't get to you, and there are bad guys, quote-unquote, trying to hurt you or hurt you and your family or whatever? I would much rather have plates on than not have plates on. Yeah, you know, I think the common question is, what do you need that for, right? That's kind right. of where it revolves, or what everything resorts back to. Uh, the funny thing about the circumstances we're in right now, uh, that question is a lot more clear or the answer to that question you know it's uh it's to defend yourself it's to right. defend people around you it's uh to have not even a tactical advantage but just be equally tactical and you know the the situation that's happening right now i hope it's opening up uh, some people's eyes because i would deem uh your philosophy that you just kind of went through as a two-way absolutist i would identify myself as a two-way absolutist as well i haven't always been like that you know mm -hmm. it took me a, a good amount of time and conversation and being a little bit more open-minded to get to that conclusion that I think uh, there shouldn't be any restrictions on what civilians can own. Have you always had a uh, 2A absolutist mindset or is that something no. that developed? This is very, very new for me. I would say probably within the last two years. Uh, okay. If I had seen someone running around with a helmet, night vision, body armor, and a suppressed carbine, whether or not it was fully automatic, yeah. I would have immediately thought... <clears throat> There's some sort of special operator, they're law enforcement, there's something like that. And then if someone told me, oh, that's a civilian, like if I'd seen, you know, Lucas running around with all this stuff and someone says, oh, that's just a civilian, he's like a young kid who's been playing with all this stuff, I would have thought, why? Why does he have this? Why does he think he needs this stuff? Yeah. But then at the same time, I was totally okay with owning a bolt action deer rifle, right? Mm. That, that totally made sense because to me, the Second Amendment was about hunting, 
Sure. And it was it was always preaching to me that you know it was it was about this stuff. This is why we can own guns because it's this great thing that we participate in for conservation to manage things like deer herds, and it's very critical for uh, for the environment and for, for uh, different species and populations. I never even considered that we should really be owning these things for um, defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I get it. I see a few people here and there that were open carrying in 1911 or whatever. Uh, but I never, you know, thought of, okay, I'm going to carry a full-size duty pistol with a red dot and a light and all this stuff and carry it religiously every day. Um, that was just not in my, not in the forefront of my mind uh, until I started playing with the stuff a little bit more. I started to see what else was out there. I started listening to some figures out there. Uh, Lucas was obviously the biggest, biggest uh, influence. He was the first person I really saw running any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I started to rethink. I started to actually go back and read uh, some of the documents that, that were put in place for us as citizens of the United States and why this stuff exists. And at the end of the day, I found that uh, the Founding Fathers did not get done with a turkey hunt when uh, they wrote the Second Amendment. Yeah. They just got done freeing a nation from a tyrannical government thousands of miles away that came here to take their guns um, and try to control them and overtax them. Um, and I kind of had you know uh, an eye-opening moment. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that we should have. Not to go overthrow, and a lot of people get caught up on this, oh, you just own stuff because you're just waiting for that one opportunity to go overthrow the government and just start you know, shooting at people. No. Um, a lot of people want to immediately take sides like it's black and white. You know, There's one side and then there's the other side. What they don't understand is not everyone is on one page or the other page, even though that's what our political system is right now. Mm-hmm. There are people that think it should be somewhat of a mix of both. I mean, there's not just two or three or four. There's many different you know, political groups that just no longer exist because their voice isn't big enough. And the answer is not going in there, you know, storming in, charging, and just, just you know, starting sending rounds down range. Um, you don't even know who you're shooting at. A lot of people have been using the word boogaloo, right? That started getting thrown around on social media in the last year, um, and it kind of became a big meme thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are just waiting for a specific time when everyone just simultaneously links up and goes, okay, this is time. This is the time that we're going to go do this stuff. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Who are you going to fight? No one knows this stuff and they just want to go charging in there. Yeah. So this is something that people need to take into account if they really do feel that there should be a difference in our government. Mm-hmm. Um, just assuming that you know which side you fall on or which side the local sheriff falls on. That's not good enough. You need to go and you need to have conversations with people. You need to go downtown. You need to go to your state's capital. You need to meet with your local county sheriff. You need to find out where they stand. Because yeah. if they're going to continue to implement new new laws, red flag laws especially, you need to understand where people stand on, on these issues. You know, is the, is the local sheriff, is he your friend? Or does he have some personal vendetta against people, you know, being more armed than him? Is he going to come and kick down doors? Mm-hmm. You don't know until you go ask. And if you want to affect change, you can't sit there and complain about global politics. You need to start in your hometown, your home city, and affect the hearts and minds of those people that are that are closest to you. And you'll actually end up having a lot less flack, whether it be on social media or in person, about this stuff that you own. Because people will realize, oh, you're just a normal person who just happens to be ready for one or the other situation. Yeah, you know, I think uh, in light of this coronavirus thing, I think... Uh should we get through it out unscathed on the other side? I think it's a big opportunity for, uh, you know, gun owners and gun rights activists to really make a change. Uh, in your eyes, what is it that our culture needs to tweak or do better in order to see, get the other side to see it from our point of view or to recruit people in the middle? What is it that uh, people that are, believe in the Second Amendment need to do uh, in order to keep it alive? Because to me, it's not... Uh, 
Uh, it's not just being proficient with a gun. It's not just being active on social media. To me, uh, it's a question to yourself and those around you. What can we do to make sure that our kids are going to have this same opportunity afforded to them? So what do you, what do you think it is in your eyes? Um, I think it's actually really simple. A lot of people want to overcomplicate it. Um, it's presentation and it's mm -hmm. education. The way that you dress and the way that you train with whatever the gear is that you choose, whether it be learning how to set up a tent in the woods or learning how to reload an AR-15 fast from a plate carrier. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you're preparing to do, the way that you present that to people is the way that they see you. So if someone doesn't know me personally, right, and goes on my social media page and sees me doing a drill with a plate carrier on, with a rifle, they're going to immediately kind of generate an idea of what they think I am or what they think I should be. Until they meet me, they may have a completely different idea of what I stand for and in like an instance of a, of a red flag state, mm -hmm. someone would probably call me very, very quickly. They'd be like, oh, this person is out there doing this stuff with these scary guns. Um, I don't think you should have this stuff because I'm pretty sure AR-15s are totally illegal and so is body armor, so you should get a warrant and go kick down his door. Mm -hmm. um, so the way we present ourselves uh, is one of the biggest things. And I think that the gear that you have should be put together in a, a professional fashion uh, you see a lot of guys running around with all this, you know, dumb airsoft gear, and, and I don't want to point figures at someone that, okay, yeah, one piece of gear is more expensive than the other, but you get what I'm saying. When, when you dress up and you go to the range with the, with the equipment that you're going to train with, mm -hmm. um, don't go there looking like a bunch of hooligans. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. People, especially the older folks at the range that have been used to the way that they shoot guns, the way that they train with stuff, whatever, they see us and they immediately develop an idea of, of what we are. Um, you need to be having conversations with people. Um, one of the biggest things is public land shooting. A lot of people go out on public land and, and they shoot and stuff. And, and a lot of times they'll bring Tannerite and old TVs and pop cans. And they'll shoot up a bunch of stuff and they'll leave it everywhere. Yeah. Maybe someone caught a glimpse of you and your buddies. And maybe someone was wearing a plate carrier or wearing a helmet or something like that. So now they put two and two together. They go, okay, these guys, these you know scary prepper looking guys or whatever, they wore all this stuff and they made a big mess and they tore up a bunch of stuff. We don't like them for a number of different reasons. So your presentation, your presentation is everything. Secondly, it's education. Um, if you want to change someone's mind, reacting in a harsh way to kind of, you know, spit something back at them and say, oh, we don't think you should have this. Your response should not be, well, it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. That's never your response. If you want to change people's minds, you need to actually present them with facts and education, and then offer something in return. A lot of times someone comes up to me and says, oh, well, suppressors, suppressors are bad. We don't like suppressors. Okay, um, well, I ask them why. I ask them what they know about the current laws about them. And then we get into a little bit more of a conversation. And then I say, well, what's your opinion on this gun or this piece of equipment? So once I have a better grasp on why they think that about whatever the piece of equipment is, I always offer, would you like to go to the range? Or would you like to try some of the stuff? Because 90% of the time, they've never tried anything. Mm -hmm. Most of them haven't even shot a pistol, right? Maybe they shot their grandpa's shotgun once. Yeah. And they just don't have any experience because this stuff looks scary if you've never used it. So I always offer, can I take you to the range? Can I show you how this stuff works and maybe change your mind? Even if I don't change your mind, that's totally fine with me. At least you've seen this stuff. So maybe you can develop a more well-rounded opinion on, on what this stuff is and what it's for and how scary it really is. Mm -hmm. So education, um, going and talking with, with younger people is probably the biggest key to changing this because um, what I've noticed is a lot of adults, uh, they have their opinions you know, pretty, pretty concrete, right? They're not gonna change those. Uh, younger people, and like myself too, um, it's very easy to mold and kind of shape someone into, into what you want them to be. Um, and I certainly was. 
you know, I'm part of, I'm a part of my parents. I'm a part of the, the five people that are closest to me in my life. If, if you want to affect the most change, you need to start with the younger people. I have younger brothers and sisters. All of them have been out to the range and they've shot an AR-15. They've shot a pistol. I have a brother who's very, very young and he's doing reloads with a pistol. He can actually draw from appendix. I believe he was 13 now. He's pretty good, man. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's impressive. He's yeah. fast. He's pretty yeah. fast. So I, I've been impressed with that. And, you know, maybe he can't hold up the rifle as well as someone else can. It gets a little heavy or whatever. But when he is old enough to own a, a gun or someone can provide one for him so that he can go out and he can practice and shoot or if he wants to get into competition, um, he's going to be extremely proficient. And he's probably be, uh, one of the safest people of his peers yeah. in his class. Um, there's a few kids at the at the high school that I went to that I know shoot competition with me, and they're you know 16, 17, 18 years old, and and they shred. They're super yeah. good, and they walk around a, a public school, and yeah. not a lot of people know who they are in the three gun or USPSA world at their high school. Yeah. And I'm sure if it, the information came out in the wrong way, their teachers would be concerned, the principal would be concerned, but that kid in that school is the safest person out of anyone else in that school if a firearm was in their hands yeah. in school outside of school um and a lot of people are like oh well you know a 17 year old shouldn't be able to carry a pistol because you know this or that or the other thing i think if you have the ability to put a gun in a, a younger kid's hand that is educated that is trained that is an adult you know we accept uh, 17 18 year olds as adults right they should be able to carry it yeah yeah, I, I think the influence on the youth, too, is a, is a great topic because, uh, you know, if you've got your younger brother and a couple other kids that are shooting USPSA, uh, over time they'll have influence on, on people around them, on their friends, on their group, and that, that can sped, spread a lot quicker and a lot further than we kind of imagine sometimes. Right. And that, that sort of change is what invokes uh, change in, you know, culture and in view. Uh, one of the things I want to have a discussion about, and it's going to be kind of a difficult topic because uh, we're not clairvoyant and so we can't see into the future, but I think uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Uh, right now, you and I just got done watching some videos of uh, people walking through a Sam's Club in a prominent uh, metropolitan area and there's literally nothing, no meat, no produce, no anything. Uh, in the coming days, in the coming weeks, uh, what can gun owners do to be responsible as the potential for chaos sets in as uh, this really this feeling of unknown that I think we all have. I mean, I, I know I'm definitely concerned. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight and it only seems to be getting worse. Uh, what are some things that gun owners need to keep in mind? What are some things you're keeping in mind and doing uh, to stay current, to stay on top of things, but also to stay safe? Right. So my answer is probably going to be not what everyone would, would think it would be. Um, and it's it's a lot of a lot of gun owners won't even consider this. This won't even be the, even the forefront of their mind. But um, we are underprepared for mm -hmm. the situation. Yep. And as gun owners, we are are fairly prepared for one part of it. Yeah. But we are not prepared for the other part of it, which is supporting other people. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people right now that have a lot of time on their hands. Maybe they haven't been exposed to the virus, right. but um, mandatory. You can't come into the office. You can't do this. You can't do that. Well, you now have a whole bunch of time on your hands to go affect your community. 
So if you could, let's say, go volunteer at your local food shelf because there's a whole bunch of people that are underprivileged, that are maybe homeless or whatever, all of these people that have been getting support mm-hmm. for the longest time for their conditions or whatever it may be, um, they're going to be the ones that are going to lose that support first. Because as as sad as it sounds, uh, our system is going to default to the people that um, society thinks needs the support the most, which is going to be the people that are pretty fortunate, have good insurance, you know, good lives or whatever, but maybe there's someone that's a, a political figure. Maybe there's someone that's um, popular or, or an actor or something like that. Um, we're going to forget about uh, the, the biggest group of people, which is the people that live below the poverty line, the people that live um, day by day. By cleaning out the shelves at your local uh, Walmart or your local Sam's Club or Costco or wherever it is that you shop, you are not only creating a problem for yourself for the future, mm-hmm. but you are making a whole bunch of other people's lives way, way, way more difficult because now they can't get anything. And maybe they lived one day at a time. Now they don't have those supplies. So there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna be turning to um, communal uh, support, you know, because government support is gonna be shifting around. Mm-hmm. We're gonna be moving and reallocating resources for different situations as they pop up. We don't exactly know what that looks like at this point. But the biggest thing that we can do as gun owners is to support our local communities of less fortunate people. Because if you want to affect hearts and minds of people, mm-hmm. the biggest voters, the biggest people out there that can can make a difference for this country, for, for better or worse, those are the people you should be supporting right there. So yeah. if you want to educate, start right there. Start locally and go help some folks that are, that are less fortunate. So uh, you've been you've been traveling a little bit. You've been driving. Uh, you've got to see a couple of different communities in bigger and smaller towns. What what have you been seeing so far the last couple of days? So um, when I originally left for this trip, uh, the virus was not even in my home state of Minnesota. Uh, most of the states in central U.S. were unaffected by it. Uh, so I traveled from from Minnesota to Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was working out there for about a week. Uh, I've been monitoring the situation and seeing it, how it's kind of spread and how it's affected the U.S. Uh, only in the most recent couple of days yeah. has the situation on, on you know, shelf space really changed. Um, there's a weird kind of eerie feeling mm-hmm. when I talk to people as I've been driving across the country here. Like every gas station I stop in, every, every conversation I hear across the aisle, it's all about this. And people are very, very concerned. Um, and in stores, they're cleaned out. I mean, yeah. all of these big stores, everything crucial, meats, um, canned food, toilet paper, that's the biggest one that I really don't understand. Uh, it's all gone. And once they clean out one thing, they go, well, the next thing's gonna go missing. So we should probably grab a bunch of those. And then yep. you clean out that and you create a bigger issue. And part of it is, is the structure that we have set up here. Um, we follow, um, a number of rules of engineering that have been in place for a very long time when it comes to distribution and manufacturing of goods and uh, um, you know some of the consumable products that we have and it's called just-in-time manufacturing. Just-in-time manufacturing is so that when we run out of whatever the, the object is, toilet paper, right when we're about to run out of that, that's when they send us, us more toilet paper. So Costco, they have an automated system. When their SKU number gets down to you know however many rolls, they order a bunch more. Well, we just threw all those systems, all those automated systems off by cleaning out everything from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And now you're trying to order all this stuff at once and in larger quantities to prepare. So you're putting in manual orders for stuff that you've never done before. So the supply chains are shocked. 
They don't know what to do. They're having demands. They don't have enough stuff. They're having to get it from the manufacturers, right? The actual, the, the place where this toilet paper is being made. Now, the biggest and scariest thing that I see is in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So in medications that are critical and people actually need, um, I'm seeing bigger lines of people in the pharmaceutical aisles. Every bit of cold medicine, mm. if you want cough syrup and you go to your local Target or Walmart or whatever, mm. it's gone. Yeah. If you want Advil, it's gone. People have cleared this stuff out. And those are the stuff you can buy just off the shelf. The over-the-counter stuff, a lot of that stuff comes from uh, primarily India and China. Mm -hmm. We've just nuked a whole bunch of our exports and imports because we're trying to stop this thing from crossing overseas, which really makes no sense to me because it's already here. But there is, from what I've heard, 150 critical drugs that about a half a million Americans rely on to live. Yeah. And a number of underlying health conditions. I mean, you really need this stuff. If you go a couple of days without whatever this medication could be for your condition, you will die. Yeah. We have a we have a half a million people relying on meds that we're going to run out of here unless we reopen all the supply chains or we start manufacturing it ourselves. Yeah. And that's that's we've put ourselves in this situation. We had one problem, and now we created ten other problems. The other thing we did is we took all the kids out of school. We told them to go home and just stay there until further notice. Well, all you did is just take the one the one living organism that can really harbor a whole bunch of diseases and fight them off pretty well, and you brought them home and exposed them to a bunch of people that may not be able to handle it as well. Now, people have to take time off of work to take care of their kids uh, because they're home from school, longer breaks, and now the work is sending them home, and you're having to work from home, so now you're working from home, and you have you know kids at home, and now you're being exposed to a virus that they brought home with them at school. You have to worry about grandma, things like that. Um, we created a, a much bigger crisis uh, than we had in the first place, and it's because people react um, with very, very primal instincts. As yeah. soon as you're missing something, they they freak out. If you don't have your cell phone for you know a day, you start to wonder who texted me, who emailed me, who called me, what could be going on online, right? Yeah. I do that myself. If I don't look at my phone for a couple hours, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's going on, right? right. That's something I'm 100% addicted to, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're talking, you know, necessities, things that you actually need as far as consumables go, um, people typically will, if you look at other countries, and we can look at other countries, for example, even if they don't have similar governments, we can look at human nature. People will typically start to consider things like anarchy when they start missing meals. Yeah. And we're not at that point, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty well off right now. Yeah, I understand some consumables are gone, but if underprivileged people become the first ones to, to start missing meals, and that's a lot of the population here, we may have a very large issue on our hands. And that's an issue that we've, like I said, we've, we've caused for ourselves. And again, to tie back to, you know, my response on what we should really be doing, um, those that are more fortunate you need to be going out there and you need to be volunteering. You need to be helping. You need to see what you can do for your community. Because if you are prepared, obviously your family, your loved ones, the closest people to you, those are priority number one. Yeah. Everyone else, though, maybe they don't have that support system. Maybe they don't have that person in their life that can provide that for them. And those are the people that make up the United States. Those are the people that put their hard work and, and, and blood, sweat, and tears into making sure this whole living organism of this country continues to work. Yep. If you cut that off and you forget about those people, you have a big problem on your hands. Yep. I think uh, there's some things, too, that uh, people just, they got to get it straight. And the first is, 
the entire system from manufacturing to consuming is incredibly fragile. We've already put a kink in that, and now we're sitting on even thinner ice. And so if a power plant or electricity or water or another part of that, uh, those human basic human needs goes, uh, it's incredibly fragile and it could get even worse that much quicker. Uh, one of the things that I think I see a lot, even in our community, is denial. I think people, you know, I, I think that there's plenty of stuff out there that's humorous that I've laughed at, but I also think that people are brushing this off as it's going to go away. And now that it's real, now that it's in our communities, now that your toilet paper aisle is bare, I think it's time to stop wishing for the best and it's start to take this thing literally because it's here and it's happening. And then the other thing that uh, if you're not familiar with the term triage, you should get familiar with it because what it essentially means in a medical sense is treating the patient with the most, the highest likelihood of living. Uh, it's a terrible thing. I would never want to have to make that choice. There's doctors in Italy right now that are triaging patients. They're choosing one out of 10 patients that get the respirator and that person's probably going to get to live and the others won't. Now that goes all the way back to our grocery stores and our bare aisles, right? So they're triaging items at this moment. What items do we need to order that we can get on the truck and get here now uh, that are most important? And so you need to reverse triage with your preparedness uh, from this point forward. So you need to find out what is the biggest priority of things that you're missing or people in your community, like you said, are missing and try and bridge that gap a little bit because the unrest will come from the bottom up. It will come from the least prepared. So pointing the finger and you know making fun or all that other stuff uh, at the people that don't have what they need and aren't ready, uh, that's, that's not a good mentality because things could get uh, bad in a hurry. I don't think uh, there's anybody right now that can believe what they're seeing. I know I sure as hell can't. You know, it's uh, it's pretty unreal to watch it. And I I think you're uh, you're 100% right about uh, what can I do to help because uh, our society has gone so far away from, uh, well, I can't do anything. I can't change it. You know, like I, I've got no uh, impact on this. That's simply not true. You know, every, everybody has uh, an impact that they can make. And, uh, you know, as, as firearms owners too, uh, I think it's our duty to make sure this thing doesn't escalate. Uh, and even if it does get violent, you know, uh, use extreme caution, use uh, really good judgment when it comes to, uh, you know, even taking your firearm out, let alone, you know, discharging it or, or pointing it in a direction. It's extremely fragile. And I would use extreme caution and discourse when it comes to that. Right. And I think we're going to see a lot of uh, instances, uh, if we do continue to see a shortage in supplies, yeah. we are going to see um, more fights, yep. more um, outbreaks of, of, of people you know, scrambling to try to get something. Um, I was talking to someone in town here, and they said there were several fights at the local Walmart. Okay, the local Walmart, yeah, people tend to get a little bit weird there later at night. Yeah. Well, this is something they don't see normally. And people were fighting because they wanted that pack of chicken or they wanted that pack of steak right. or whatever. And they were literally fist fighting in the aisle at the local Walmart in a nice, quiet town, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is, we're at the point where no one's missed a meal yet. Yeah. And you already have people throwing fists over, over you know, a steak, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's that's going to continue to prevail, and I think we're going to see a lot more instances where it's going to get a, a more violent. Mm -hmm. So us as gun owners, we have actually the highest responsibility other than the government that we elected to protect us from these situations. Mm -hmm. Us as gun owners and as individuals that consider ourselves to be prepared for these situations, 
we need to go out there and we need to make sure that we are helping and not making the problem worse. That means if you see someone struggling, if you see an older woman, you know, in the aisle and she can't, you know, she, she doesn't have enough food at her place, right? And she's trying to find uh, a can of soup or whatever. And you have a cart full of soup. Mm-hmm. Go give some of that to her. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, uh, a young, uh, you know, healthy individual. I could go, you know, quite a few days without eating, right? Yeah. I could miss some meals. And I'm a long ways away from that because of what I have prepared at my house and the network that I have and the family that I have and the support I have there. Um, not everyone is that fortunate. And um, if you really want to make a change right now is, is your opportunity to do so. So, you know, use discretion when you're out there and, um, you know, really think about, think about your neighbor. If you don't know your neighbor, and I'm talking like your next door neighbor, maybe go knock on the door, maybe introduce yourself, maybe say, you know what? We don't know what's going to happen, but here's an open door. Yeah. I have these supplies. I would like to share them with you if that time comes and I can provide protection or, or, you know, some form of, of emotional security. If you feel unsafe, go around your neighborhood, you know, make, make those connections, uh, have those conversations with people because at the end of the day, if the absolute worst comes to worst, you want your community on your side. You do not want to be the outlier uh, in, a, in a civil unrest situation. A lot of people think they can just go fight this battle by themselves and go take down uh, whatever system and, and make it their own. It's not how any of this works. No. You can only do that with the support of a good network of people. And it's not all about slinging guns and, and fast splits at the range. Yeah. That stuff is cool, but you got to think about the basics. Yeah, if you if you carry concealed, if you keep a carbine in the truck, I think now is a good time to clearly define your ROE, your rules of engagement. What is it that dictates uh, me drawing my weapon? What dictates uh, me putting the finger on the trigger? All of that stuff. I think it's good to reiterate uh, what the criteria is for that stuff, because in my opinion, uh, no matter how unruly this thing gets, that criteria doesn't change for me. It's uh, it's always the same. And so I think it, at this point, it's a good thing to identify because things are getting chaotic. Things are getting emotional. And so I think maybe going over those ROEs with yourself and your buddies and your family is important. It's, you know, it can play a crucial role going forward uh, because there's going to be consequences for all that stuff, regardless if the shelves are empty or not. Um, we could probably talk about this all day long because it's really all that's on anybody's mind or any media. But uh, one of the things I kind of want to get to is uh, some of your goals for 2020. What are you chasing? What are you trying to do uh, both professionally, both uh, social media wise uh, with maybe some sponsors? What do you got, uh, you know, on on the table? So this is something that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot in the last, you know, a couple of days and even a couple of weeks as, as, you know, the situation has started to change here in the United States with the virus and stuff. Um, and a lot of times I, I find myself going, okay, well, this is the future right now. What's it going to be like in a couple months? Um, I am not stopping planning my life. Yeah, me neither. Right? Um, I am prepared for the situation, whichever way it goes, and I'm not going to derail my life um, and stop preparing for all the good stuff that I have planned for 2020. So, um, 2020 season, USPSA se- uh, season starts here. The outdoor season starts here in, uh, I want to say, about two months. 
Um, I have about five major matches I'm going to be attending, uh, you know, a bunch of state championships, uh, the Area 3 championship, and hopefully nationals. Mm -hmm. uh, waiting to hear if I get a slot for that. Uh, I'm going to be competing in the carry optics division. Um, Mac Defense, Mac Defense, um, you guys are familiar with if you listen to this podcast. Uh, they are going to be providing me uh, some Glocks for competition, which I will be using for USPSA. And my goal right now as a master class shooter is to make GM uh, with one of their Glocks. So um, that's kind of my, my end all goal. Um, I want to see where I land in that in that master or GM uh, placing in the karyopics division in a larger match. Um, I've shot a few majors up until this point, but I've never shot an area championship or national. So this year is going to be a really big year for me to see what's out there as far as those level three matches and a bunch of those level twos go. Yeah. Big thing is mindset going into that. I learned that shooting a few majors last year. Um, each major I shot last year, there was one stage where the wheels came off mm. and the rest of the match was playing catch up yeah. for that stage because it was it was either right at the first stage or it was midway through because one little mental factor got in the way and and I either outran my gun you know uh, with with you know not understanding what my actual capability was in that circumstance or whatever it may be um, but I think being a more mature shooter and understanding the separation between competitive shooting and my you know preparedness tactical shooting whatever you want to call it yeah um, I like to think of this game a little bit more like golf mm -hmm. than any other sport uh, because of the mental aspect. Yeah. You, you, you clear your mind of everything else and you do what you came there to do, which is perform to your very best. And all those outside factors, um, they go out the door. As soon as the timer goes beep, a lot of people go, oh, what do you think about it? How do you plan this? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. I walk through the stage, I plan everything, you know, I see what I'm going to see. When that timer goes off, it's, there, there's nothing there. Yeah, I, I just I, I do what what I've practiced to do, and uh, and I run through the exact stage plan that I had memorized before the timer went off. When when I'm done shooting, I replay it in my head, and I can see every single shot. I can see every single you know foot placement. And I know exactly what I did wrong. I know exactly when I had a really good uh, stage, and I performed to the to the best of my ability. So I think you know a lot of it is going to be uh, uh, just seeing how I fall. Uh, in the line of other really great shooters, yeah. uh, because we have a lot of really great shooters this year, I want to see where I where I line up there and how uh, maturing as a shooter has really placed me uh, in the world of USPSA. And I, you know, I could not do that with a lot of the, the support and sponsors that I have for this year. So I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I have and for being able to to meet a lot of great people and make a lot of good connections. And uh, I'm looking forward to kind of continuing to to grow those relationships uh, because at the end of the day, um, I would love to continue to make. USPSA and competitive shooting, uh, more of a more of a long term uh, maybe career, mm -hmm. so to so to speak. Uh, training is something I'm very passionate about. I'm looking to get into that here in the next year. Yeah. Uh, we'll see which direction that takes. You know what kind of my demographic is and, and where we end up going with that. Um, I want to be able to provide a path for people that are new to this and kind of show them. You know, basically expedite the process of here's all the stuff that I wasted my time on thinking about yeah. and here's how you can just skip all this stuff and go right to what really matters and a lot of that is uh, you know stuff I had to figure out on my own and not saying there wasn't people there to, to provide me with good information but you know it's it definitely would have been a lot quicker process had I had uh, you know some form of a, a, a coach or mentor so I'm looking forward to finding some some folks that could use that one of those is, is my younger brother right now he's uh, yeah. he's gonna be going to, into law enforcement Oh, really? So uh, I've, I've been getting him involved in competitive shooting and hoping that, you know, we can help make a difference in the uh, in the competitive shooting world.
by showing them that there's a law enforcement officer that, that takes this seriously, takes his job seriously, goes and practices with his gun. Yeah. And hopefully we can change uh, some things in the way law enforcement is run from uh, from the inside there with uh, his example uh, in the community, in the competitive shooting world, and uh, in the law enforcement world in the future. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, guys like you, I, I really try and promote as much as possible. And the reason for that is uh, the the tactical tier one community. You know, there's guys like Tony Cowden and uh, Drew Estelle from Bear Solutions. These ex Green Berets, like everyone wants to be like them. You know, they're just swagger dudes. They're cool. Everyone wants to be uh, in that job or in those shoes. Same with the law enforcement guys like Ryan. You know, everyone wants to be high speed. Uh, yeah, high speed. You know, and then there's the other guys I've had on my podcast like Max, uh, like Shane, like JJ. Well, you guys haven't heard JJ's episode yet, but it's coming. Uh, all those guys, uh, it's too easy to look up to those guys. What I don't think we have enough of is the people that represent uh, the civilian shooter, the guy that uh, is just your regular nine to five dude that has an interest and a drive uh, to be better with the tools that he carries and to not rely on other people for his safety. I don't think there's going to be enough of examples of guys like that. You know, I've had Jared on, I've had Lucas on, uh, I've had you on, you know, and I've had plenty of others, Matt Gallant. And, uh, you know, those guys are, including yourself, I think our community needs uh, more than just a handful. We need a lot of them because uh, it's a crucial component to our community. And I think uh, the tide is changing a little bit, but I still think there is this stigma or this, uh, you know, reputation of, hey, you can't do that. You don't know what you're doing, you know, and it's not true. It's simply not true. You can be self-taught. You can be self-made. You don't need those, you know, institutions to teach you. In fact, those institutions sometimes uh, teach you the bad things or the wrong habits. So I just want to commend you on that for uh, just, you know, being you and, and having a drive to be better, man. It's just, uh, you know, I, I definitely am, I want to promote that as much as possible because it's huge and I truly admire it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's the biggest thing I'm trying to push with my platform is showing that, that, you know, people like myself, you know, I'm just a dude that has a regular day job yeah. and this thing is, a, you know, a side thing that I do. Um, I'm trying to do it at a very high level. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because these are tools that I carry with me every day to prepare for uh, worst case scenarios. And a lot of folks will dismiss the competitive shooting side of it because it will get you killed in the streets, yep. so to speak. Um, I would really highly encourage you guys to uh, maybe think twice about that. Come to a USPSA match. Uh, if you're local to me. Uh, come to a match, you know, shoot me a message. I'll let you know where one is happening and try it out and see where you fall. See where your skill set falls and what you can improve on because I found things in my USPSA game and that I tweaked that will definitely help me in the real world if I ever, you know, God forbid I ever have to use any of these tools uh, in a self-defense situation. Uh, USPSA has not uh, taken anything away. It's definitely given and uh, it's provided a, a really cool group of people to be able to meet, to be able to compete with at a very high level. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this this stuff is supposed to be fun. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be able to build a good network of people, just like any sport, any pastime, any hobby. Um, and this is this is a really good one. I'm very grateful for the people that I've found. So if you're, uh, if you're thinking about trying it, definitely uh, shoot me a message. Um, I'm more than happy to give you uh, any information that I can and uh, direct you to, uh, to the right people. Your Instagram handle will be linked in the show notes, but what is it real quick? Uh, my Instagram handle is Jim Krantz Shooter. Um, okay. I don't really use Facebook or anything else like that. So if you uh, if you want to shoot me a message uh, or see any of this uh, any of the stuff that I'm doing, I try my best to put out content that I hope you all enjoy. Um, I enjoy doing it. You know, I love doing this stuff. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, I, I, my wife's from Minnesota, from pretty near where you grew up, and 
you know, the videos of you with the 60 mile an hour winds in the snow. I'm just oh, like, yeah. that dude's crazy, man. I would never be out there doing that. It is cool. But, but it, it's motivating. It really is. And, you know, it, when I was getting into shooting open uh, the last few months and uh, here, I think I'm going to have it rounded out and have a, a permanent atlas that I'm going to shoot open with. I talked to some people that are pretty high level open shooters and I asked them, I said, Hey, when you shoot open, is it going to deter me from uh, shooting a carry gun or shooting a carbine? And they actually said, no, it's, it's actually the opposite of that. It actually helps you. And I was at the time I was like, how's that possible? It doesn't make any sense. Now that I've been shooting open for a little while, it's actually the truth. It does, uh, it refines my game in a way that I couldn't necessarily do it with a more limiting plastic gun because uh, it shows me what my footwork is capable of. It shows me what my trigger splits are capable of, and it really does translate to the other things. And I think that's a big misconception uh, that the skills that you obtain in USPSA, whatever division you shoot, aren't going to apply to the real world. And simply, uh, that's a fallacy. It's not true. In fact, it works the other way. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a believer of that either. So I think what you're saying is, is 100% true. Uh, what is the first major match that you're going to shoot? Uh, I would have to look at the schedule here okay. because I have a couple of them that are kind of lining up back to back. But I'll be shooting the uh, Minnesota Championship, the Illinois Championship, Iowa Championship, and okay. Wisconsin. Okay. As well as uh, Area Three. Okay. Yeah. So if you see Jim at one of those area matches, make sure you come say what's up. Uh, you know, come shake his hand and and see what he's about because he's a good representative for the community and uh, he's putting out good stuff. Uh, but I think uh, we'll probably cap it there. I know you got a long drive ahead of you. I appreciate you coming in, sitting down with me. I don't invite very many people over to my house. Uh, so thank you for coming in and, and being a, an awesome guest. And thanks for being on the podcast, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. All right. You drive safe, man. And for everybody that tuned into this episode, I appreciate every time you listen, uh, every time you play it, every time you share it. Until next time, I'm your host, CJ Boxrude, and this is Empty Brass.